Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. NFTs are often viewed as modern technological wonders of sorts, but like a lot of things in crypto can create some interesting legal questions. Like, what exactly does one get when they buy an NFT? And what does owning an NFT even mean? And this kind of ambiguity has really sparked conversation and lawsuits spanning the world of hip-hop to Hollywood and impacting virtually every customer of an NFT. Even law professors are asking whether or not NFTs and blockchain technology more generally are redefining what intellectual property is and how it should operate. Well, to answer these and other questions, we have Stu Levy, a partner at Skadden Arps and NFT legal god, here to talk to us about what's happening to NFT law during crypto winter and what it all means for decentralized entertainment. Stu, thanks so much for joining the show. Chris, thanks for having me. Really excited to be on the podcast. All right. So, NFTs. We've had already before a couple of episodes trying to tackle NFTs and what they are, but maybe with us here, you know, we can take a 10,000 foot stab at the issue and really ask you from your perspective as uh, an intellectual property lawyer, you know, what makes NFTs interesting from the standpoint of IP law? Sure. So I think what's interesting is almost how um, traditional it is. And what I mean by that is, as we all know, for, for those of us in the Web3 space, there are a lot of areas in the law that are at best square peg, round hole, trying to fit law written very much for a centralized ecosystem with terminology that doesn't really apply and try to define it, to try to apply it to the space. Um, intellectual property law actually kind of works. Um, it it you know, applies um, in this area of technology development, um, with a couple of exceptions we'll talk about, or maybe not exceptions, maybe sort of figuring out how to apply it, as it does everywhere. There's a little bit of a different approach and philosophy as to what IP rights should mean. We'll talk about that a little bit, but the law, the law kind of works. We, you know, we do at Scadden and my group a, a ton of NFT work. And early on, uh, we were talking to a large uh, NFT project who was looking for counsel, and I was telling him some of the IP issues you need to think about. And so we understand IP law doesn't really apply in Web3. And I was like, it, it kind of does. <laughs> like, you, can't just, uh, <laughs> you can't just pretend it doesn't. So to start with the real basics, this is the way we always you know, explain it to people, is that if you just go to art generally, like think of that as just your base use case. If I go buy a painting from an artist, uh, from a gallery at auction, I own now that physical painting it does not give me intellectual property rights in that painting. So what does that mean? For most buyers of art, they don't care. They're sticking it on their wall, showing it to their friends, glad they own it. Most people are not thinking about, can I now go make posters of this, put it on mugs, go sell it in stores, because like I own the painting on my wall. Because the answer is you don't, you can't, unless the artist actually conveyed to you intellectual property rights to go do that, you can't do that. You don't have the rights to do that. And the same thing is true in the NFT space. By buying an NFT, a piece of digital art now, no different from that oil painting, 
you know, I bought it at auction stuck on my wall. Um, I own the NFT, like I own the, you know, that ownership right in the work. We can talk about what that, you know, sort of means. Um, but I don't have intellectual property rights to now go do anything, you know, put it on toys, make an animated series, put it on sweatshirts. And so initially, when NFT started coming out, people had assumed if I buy an NFT, well, that's kind of different from buying a painting. I should get to do all that. And we're a little bit surprised to learn that they didn't have those rights. So that's sort of the baseline, which is that unless someone gives you intellectual property rights in a creative work that you're getting, and particularly copyright rights, we try to trademark in a little bit, um, you don't have anything other than the implied right to show people you know, on your phone, your iPad, whatever, hey, look, you know, I bought this NFT, this is cool. Maybe put it as your profile picture. But to commercialize it, you don't have those rights. So that's sort of the baseline case. I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, you know, you know, there are a lot of people whose minds are just being blown on many different <laughs> levels. I'm sure that the securities law people who are listening to like anything involving Web3 projects are saying, wow, you mean it's like something <laughs> works? And then there's the lawyerly, it kind of works, in which I'm trying to figure out is the emphasis on kind of or works? But uh, it, which is which is which is kind of a, an interesting question. But, you know, you know, I, I think I, as a very um, superficial non-IP lawyer uh, dilettante, you know, kind of came to this IP question. You know, when I say when I saw uh, Rockefeller Records suing uh, Damon Dash, you know, trying to prevent him from auctioning off copyright rights to Jay Z's Reasonable Doubt album, you know, I was like, man, th- you know, this stuff is the field for me. Uh, but but you know, I you know th- you know just just the way that that question kind of came to the fore. Was one in which I'm, in which many people were trying to say, you know, is is this suggesting that we need to reexamine IP law, or, you know, is 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 the system working? It's just that people aren't. Yeah, so I think so. Let's use that. So it's a great um, use case or example case of how you apply IP law into this realm. Because one of the questions we get all the time, as you can imagine, is do I have the rights to mint an NFT of this piece of work? So if I'm an artist. I created the work. It's been sitting in my studio or on my computer or whatever. There's no one to even ask, right? It's mine. There's there's no other parties involved. But for a lot of things, um, once you get into anything involving Hollywood, the music industry, you've got joint work, joint artists working together. Um, now, and you know, you've you've sort of given out rights to some people, but not rights to other people. Um, it gets super complicated, super fast. And the reason it's so complicated is up until. What a year ago, there was no agreement out there that talked about who had NFT rights, right? No one was thinking about this. It's not like you can look at an agreement that was written in 2015 and say, like, where's the paragraph on who has NFT rights? Nowadays, a lot of the work we do is with companies who are sort of doing that going forward. So their form agreement with photographers, with artists, with creators that they work with now for sure talk about who has the right to mint an NFT. But most agreements didn't. So now you have to look at the agreement and figure out, okay, this is new. Is this like a book, which this person has rights to? Is this like, you know, an artistic distribution, which that other person has rights to and sort of figure out, you know, where where it fits? You know, Quentin Tarantino, they settled recently, had this big dispute with Miramax um, over an NFT he wanted to do of his version of the script from Pulp Fiction, where it had some of his notes on it. And, you know, people looked at that as sort of, oh, cutting edge, innovative NFT case. But it, it was good old fashioned, like, let's look at the agreement. If Quentin Tarantino is publishing a coffee table book, of, you know, his script, they'd have the same fight. You know, this was just, it wasn't like oh, an NFT made it something unique. It was, who had the rights to those scripts? When Miramax bought the rights to Pulp Fiction, you know, did it include all of his copies and versions of scripts? And it turns out, looks like he, they may, may have. 
So a lot of it is just sort of good old fashioned, you know, applying IP law to looking at a contract and figuring out who has the rights to mint an NFT, uh, which is tricky, but not something new. We've had that before as new technologies come out. Yeah. You, you know, I think, you know, for a non-lawyer sort of listening to this, they're going to be a little bit surprised to hear, you know, that you're differentiating, particularly a little bit earlier when we were kicking off, you know, this distinction between ownership and intellectual property rights. You know, could you could you maybe um, break that down? You know, like so, you know, because a lot of people think, wait a minute, I, I own it, so that means, like, doesn't that mean that I have intellectual property rights? I mean, it's 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 mine. Yeah. So so the answer is no, but we're going to get into why there's been such a big IP issue in the NFT space, although it's not really an IP law issue. It's sort of an NFT slash Web3 ethos issue. So if you think about it, you go out and you buy a copy of one of the Harry Potter books. You own that book. No one can just say, actually, you know, Jackie Allen can't show up and say, actually, can I book back? Uh, you own the book. You physically own the book. Um, you can't now say, well, wait a second. If I own the book, does that mean I now own like the story in it. I bought the book. I'm going to go create, you know, I don't know what number she ended up with, you know, an eight, eighth book, a ninth book, um, because I own the book. I guess I own the content of it. Almost everybody would say like, well, no, that's not right. It's her book. Like you just bought a physical copy of the book. It's kind of the same thing, you know, in the world of, of NFTs, which is, and as I said, you know, same thing in the world of traditional art, you physically can own something without getting the IP rights in that. But if you want, let me segue into sort of, you know, how this is all blown up. As I said, it's sort of a Web3 ethos issue. Yeah, because I, I think that, that that particularly the number of it, of lawsuits, you know, tends to suggest that something is is really breaking down a, a little bit. And it'd be great to hear, you know, along what lines you're, you're, you're sort of seeing those. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say a lot of the disputes so far have been the more, you know, traditional I mint an NFT and you tell me, wait a second, Stu, we we did that work together. You can't just go off and mint an NFT without you know, giving you some of the money without my permission. It's been sort of been those sorts of things where the sort of the non-litigation so far, they could turn into litigation, but most of the non-litigation battles have been so far is the Web3 ethos point, which is the following, which is, okay, that's great, Stu, for traditional art. I get the JK Rowling book thing, but these are NFTs. We're part of the community. I buy an NFT, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just buying a piece of art, I'm buying ownership in this community. That's the perception I have. And so what do you mean I don't own my digital art that came with that NFT? The whole point is we own this as a group. We own the project, we're a community. And that's not an IP concept, that's a Web3 concept. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? It's not, it's not the wrong thought to have. Um, but if you're gonna do that, you still come back to the baseline of, okay, fine, but someone's got to give you the rights to be able to do that. So if your mindset is, I own this piece of work, I should put it, be able to put it on sweatshirts, um, mugs, make an animated series, do whatever. Um, the creator of the works still has to give you the rights to go do that. So what some projects started to do is actually give you those rights, commercialization rights. And they ranged and to this day range widely from, hey, you know something, you're right. You, you know, you don't, you don't own the IP rights yet, but we're going to give you an incredibly broad license um, that you can go do whatever you want. Knock yourself out. As much money as you can make, you can do whatever you want. Some projects say you can commercialize your rights, except, you know, you can't do an animated series because we want to do that. So you have every right except that. Some projects have said, 
you can go commercialize it, but you can't make more than X dollars, which I've always thought was, was not a really elegant solution because it almost says you can make a few things for your friends because once you're capping how much money I can make, what if I feel like, yeah, I want to make a bunch of sweatshirts. I start selling them and also it's the hottest thing out there. Like at some point I stopped selling because I've made too much money. You know, it's hard to manage that in the real world, but some projects do that. So we're seeing different kinds of commercialization rights um, being offered out there. Um, there's a, so now that leads into a couple of other problems. So, and this is where, you know, as I said, there are some, you know, IP NFT issues where again, IP law works, it's how do you apply it? So issue one is almost all these contracts say, these licenses out to you, it's part of the terms of use, say, we can change these terms of use at any time. And, you know, it's the fine print. No one's, you know, most people aren't reading the terms of use to begin with. Um, most people are definitely not reading to the bottom where it says we can change these at any time. What if all of a sudden I've, you know, built out this whole idea, I've actually gone, gotten subcontractors, I'm out doing it. And all of a sudden you say, actually, on second thought, we're taking away commercialization rights starting, you know, next week. Or, or, and this happened in a couple of projects, we say, you know, we're actually going to put these out in the public domain. Anyone can use them. You have no rights to claim. You have rights and no one does. We really want to just put this out into the world for everybody to use for free. Um, so now your license, you know, your sub-license to get to someone to make sweatshirts and charging them, you know, 20% or whatever, they might say, well, wait a second, what do I need you for? It's now out in the marketplace for free for anyone to use. I'm just going to go do it myself. I don't need you anymore. So that can create a huge tension point, this idea of being able to change rights out from under people. Um, that's a pretty recent development of a couple of projects um, doing that. And so that's a, you know, a real tension point that's out there. Um, another interesting sort of tension point that's out there, and we're seeing this, unfortunately, much more, I, I think, than you see with real world art um, or tangible you know, two-dimensional art, is the theft of NFTs. So I've got an NFT. This is this famous Seth Green board ape case. I've got an NFT. It's stolen from me. Now, how you define stolen is interesting because it's not like someone came into my house or, you know, hacked into my computer and removed it from my wallet. You know, it's a, it's a social, um, you know, phishing attack where, you know, oh, we need to update your graphics, you know, click here and you click there and all of a sudden, you know, it's out of your wallet, but it's stolen. So the thief, let's assume, you know, has no rights, but now the thief probably flips it really quickly because they don't want to hold it. And now I'm the innocent purchaser, but on OpenSea, I've now got an NFT. I've, I'm, a, I'm a good guy, I've done nothing wrong. And now the original owner comes back to me and says, wait, that's mine. It was stolen. You've got no rights to it. Um, a lot of these contracts out there are not so clear what happens in that situation. Side note, they just updated the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code, which is a state law version of how you sort of deal with you know, ownership rights and property. And they have the concept in there, which just got, it just got passed. So states are going to start adopting it. That's, and they have a, they've created a special section for um, basically digital digital assets. They call it something else, and it's a little broader, but it's for digital assets. That an innocent downstream purchaser owns the you know has has rights in what they bought. You as the original owner can't come in and say, "I know you're an innocent purchaser, but you know you can't use it." Um, they're it seems going to be allowed to be able to use that. So that's what makes this world a little bit messier from an IP perspective but we're still applying pretty traditional IP concepts to just a new technology. 
so you know, n- not to be too law professory here, but yeah. you know, uh, can't help it. You know, when you when you listen to you know the Web three ethos, you know, th- th- there's actually within property law and like you know these sort of uh, property law philosophers and and scholars, you know, th- there's this whole idea of something called the you know uh, sort of tragedy of the anti commons. A guy named uh, Michael Heller, you know, came up with this idea saying, you know, y- you can create. A situation, and and by the way, shout out to Michael, former professor. By the way, you know he said, "Hey, you know, if you have too many rights, sort of that that people have, you basically can end up with a, a situation where you 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 don't get that much innovation, you don't get that much creation, and you know, even as property rights are intended to incent people to create things." At a certain point, it's there's like an inflection point where you don't get as much sort of creation as as would be optimal, you know, for society. I mean, is this like the basic idea between the ethos, or is it like an ind- more, even more individualistic kind of driver behind it? That's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I think if people are being honest, it's a little bit more individualistic. I'm always reminded of two things or think of two things in, in, in those sorts of situations because you're exactly right. So one is we work with a, with a Hollywood producer who once, you know, commenting on this issue said that if you work in the entertainment industry, creating, you know, high-end content or, you know, medium-end content, um, everybody will tell you that more voices to a project just make the project different, not better. So, you know, you bring in one new screenwriter who's really good, you know, they'll make the script better. You bring in 20 people to work on something, you know, it might pivot, but it's not going to be like, oh, we got 20, you know, top people now, it's going to be better. Because, and it's just been, you know, it's not theoretical. It's like everyone will tell you that who works in the industry. And that's when you're getting, you know, probably, you know, 20, 30 of the most talented people, you know, in the world in terms of content creation working on something. You sort of crowdsource content creation to a large group many of whom, you know, I, I'd be in that group too, or, you know, not super creative. You know, you're not going to all of a sudden, oh, now it's going to be an amazing project because we got all these different voices and views. It'll be different, but not necessarily, you know, better. Um, and, and in many cases, they would say probably worse because you're just pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. So that's one thing. So I think that, you know, the group, the group concept's nice in theory, but is not always going to generate the best content. But the second thing is, you know, for so many of these NFT projects, the NFTs themselves are, you know, riffs on the same basic, you know, template, right? Um, you know, it's, it's multiple different versions of sort of the same thing. They have a look. You see one, you know, oh, that's part of the X project. The risk you run if everybody's off using their sort of unique version of, you know, sort of what you have is that they start doing something that you're not comfortable with. The, and, and maybe it's a bunch of people. So you're in a big project and a hundred of the people in that project get together and say, um, you know, I'll, I'll use abortion rights as a as a divisive um, topic, but not one that is, you know, hate speech or criminal or whatever. Right. And all of a sudden, the image of what, you know, you own is now starting slowly to become associated with a certain cause that you don't, you know, you're antithetical to everything you believe in. And it's starting to affect the value of the thing that you own. Um, and that's not, you know, such an unrealistic you know, situation. It doesn't even have to be something, you know, a divisive, you know, political, social issue. It could just be like they're starting to associate with high-end goods. And, you know, you don't want to be associated with, with luxury goods. You want to be associated with something else. Like there's so many ways it could play out that that's, again, a not so sort of much an IP issue, but a real world issue. If you start giving IP rights to very similar works to a group of people 
who are a community, but probably with 10,000 different views on things. Yeah, you, you know, just even listening to this, there's, there seems to be a little bit of a parallel journey that's going on, you know, in the corporate governance world with DAOs, right? You know, like, you know, how many people do you really want to have, you know, with their, you know, with with your hands in governance, you know, and, and how do you kind of optimize getting as many people as you can, but in, in a way that sort of moves a, a project forward, you know, thinking largely about, I think, the third issue that that you had brought up, you know, this fact that, you know, people can kind of change the terms of their IP rights, you know, uh, after a while. I, 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 presumably, it's when the economics change. What makes that somewhat feel interesting is that when you think about Web3 and the ethos, to your point, of, of Web3, there was always this view that Web3 could be a little bit better than than Web2. Um, you know, Chris Dixon and others basically would chart different inflection points in the development of Web2 both in terms of monetization strategy and sort of, let's call it the strategy of making money in Web2. You know, like, and, and what you're seeming to suggest is even in IP law, in the in these little nooks and crannies that no one's really noticing, as, as a project kind of advances, people may want to insert more centralization not in order to, you know, this is maybe I'm talking against myself here, but not so much to necessarily enable creation, but but instead to kind of control the success, right? You know, the, and 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 to monetize that 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 success. How much pushback has there been in the community, in the Web three community, you know, when you get those kinds of terms, you know, changes in the terms and conditions of these IP rights. I mean, is it again mm -hmm. just like an? Is this an IP issue, or is this again like a kind of an ethos-driven critique of saying, look, you know, you're you're operating in ways that that seem a little ant antithetical, you know, to to what we're trying to build here in Web three? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that you have to divide the NFT world between issuers minting NFTs of um, existing IP, entertainment companies, music companies, sports leagues, brands, um, where I don't think people have that view um, versus native Web3 projects where people very much do have that view. Um, I think people, obviously not to speak for the NFT you know, world writ large, but I think NFT um, particip people, participants in the NFT market do in their minds distinguish that. They do not expect, um, you know, I'll use my Harry Potter example again, that I buy, you know, a, a, an NFT of um, a wand or something that now I've got the right to do Harry Potter merchandise. Um, I think people don't think that way, nor do they think probably, you know, and I should have that. But I think for the native um, Web3 projects, that's very much the mindset. Again, because there's a sense like we're creating something together. What's really interesting is I think that a tension point that exists is what's in the mind of the people who created the initial project. Meaning, is their end goal, if they're being honest, that we want this to be a community project, everybody shares, everybody can go off and do their own thing, everybody's got IP rights, they can, everyone can try to do an animated series, or in their heart of hearts, they want to be the next Disney. And they want to create this, you know, IP empire. Um, where, yeah, they're NFTs, that's how, sort of how it started out, but their end game is that's really where they want to be. And I don't know, I would guess that creators are kind of themselves a little bit split on 
you know, where they really want to end up if they're being honest. Because <laughs> um, I think for some of them, you know, the best way this plays out is they're the next Disney and they've created this really iconic intellectual property suite that, you know, has superheroes, animated characters, whatever it is that has, you know, a Thanksgiving Day parade float and like, you know, is on everyone's lunchbox and, you know, it all flows back to them as the project. Uh, and I think we're still at the I initial stages to see how that plays out. Does at any point, and again, excuse me, law professor question, but like at, at any point, does it matter what the expect, the reasonable expectations of like a purchaser, you know, or, or, or participant may be? I mean, you know, right now, just for those of you who aren't lawyers, you know, we're going through all these laws where they're like statutes and, you know, some kind of legislation or whatever, but there are other ways in which legal disputes can be kind of solved, right? And more informal ad hoc kind of things that that are based and premised on, you know, well, what would a normal person think? And and here that would seem to be more important because people in Web3 world have different kinds of expectations, I think, than than, than people in, in Web2 or normal commercial uh, transactions. So I would say from a pure legal point of view, probably not. So here's what I mean by that. I think that if I sell you an NFT and say nothing about what rights you have at all, there's, I think, a very strong argument that I have an implied right to display it. I mean, that's one of the bundle of rights in copyright law. And, you know, could the copyright owner say, wait, I didn't give you the right to display that? I think if it went to court, the court would say there's a very strong implied license. Well, I sold it to you. The whole point is to show people what you have and to display it so that you can sell it. Hey, do you want to buy this? I've got to show it to you on my phone so, you know, you can, you can buy it. I think you have a very strong implied right there. Um, similarly, if I say, I'm going to give you, license you this intellectual property to go make sweatshirts, but I never grant you a distribution right, again, one of the bundles of copyright rights, there's a very strong uh, argument that you have an implied license of that distribution right, right? It goes to court. Um, the copyright holder says, well, I never gave them the distribution right. I just gave them the right to make sweatshirts. The court's going to say, come on, like, how are they going to make the sweatshirts without distributing, you know, the IP? But, but it's got to be something like that. I don't think you would win a case. I, don't, I think you'd, you'd almost like slam dunk lose the case if you said, well, part of the Web3 ethos is that when you buy an NFT, you have the rights to commercialize it. I know it's that I didn't get those rights, but I kind of expected I would. Look at these seven other projects where you get that. So I assumed I had those. You know, Court, please say I have those implied rights. I think you almost get laughed out of court. I think it's, it, it's, not, it, you know, it's not a good argument at all. All right. Well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll maybe leave this conversation with sort of looking forward and, and a less legal question and more sort of commercial one. I mean, you represent all the, uh, you know, big folks uh, out there in NFT world. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of NFT projects? You know, you know obviously, there's a lot of you know, liquidity being taken out of the market. I mean, what do you see as the future of NFTs and their likely role in, 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 in art and entertainment? Sure. So before we do that, although this is a future looking point as well, because I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on this one really critical IP NFT point, which is, you know, we've been talking about it, the license grant that you get to the NFT. What rights do you have? What rights don't you have? Sometimes let's say the NFT comes along with a benefit, right? It says you get two tickets to a concert if you buy this musician's NFT, but you have to be 18 or over to attend, right? Has something like that. I buy the NFT from the website of the minter or the issuer and says, you know, to buy this NFT, click here, see our terms, you click there, 
binding agreement. You know, courts have said click wrap, click I agree. Um, you know, we've all we've all been there. Um, and now I've 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 signed on to those terms. I show up at the concert and with you know two 16 year olds show up to the concert. You can say, look, you said you have to. It says 18 or over. Now you sell the NFT. There's not yet at all an elegant solution of how does that license agreement travel with the NFT. There's a hodgepodge of different kinds of solutions out there, but today every marketplace works differently. Not all of them pick up the same metadata from the NFT. So you can maybe say, well, we'll pull it in from the metadata. It'll say, click here to agree. Um, all of them work differently. Not all of them are, are configured that way. And what if I just see you at a party and say, hey, Chris, I bought this really cool NFT. Comes with two concert tickets. Want to buy it from me? You say, yeah, here's what I'll send it to me. And I'll send you some you know, ETH to pay you for it. And we just do it one-on-one. And now, you know, you give it to, you know, relatives, friends, whatever, the two 16-year-olds, they show up at the concert and they can't get in. You know, you never even saw those terms. So solving for that is a really, is like the, sort of the holy grail now in the NFT space because it's um, it's an issue. Everyone's trying to do the best they can, but there's no, oh, that's the solid, you know, throwing the keys, you know, it's all good um, argument for how a license agreement or legal agreement terms and conditions travels with an NFT as it gets sold. Okay, so about the future. You know, I always say this, because I don't know if I've said this to you, you know, a question I often get um, sometimes from reporters is, you know, such an American view, you know, so it's the baseball analogy, what inning are we in, you know, in NFTs? And, and my answer is it's, it's batting practice. I think people are really just experimenting with what they can do, um, how they can build fan engagement, brand engagement for you with your consumers, um, innovative and interesting things they can do. Um, you know, someday we're going to read a book about NFTs and say, you know, when NFTs first started, they were just this. <laughs> and you're like, wow, really? That's cool. That was all I did. Um, and I really think in terms of, you know, um, anything from digital certificate to, again, as I said, engagement, um, I think is all coming down the line. Um, I often say I divide the, the well, maybe the Web3 world generally, but definitely the NFT world between projects whose mindset is, if we're doing this five years from now, we did something wrong, to projects that are, we don't care about, you know, the market's soft now, strong now, it doesn't matter. We're building this for five years and out. Like we're getting it on the ground floor. There's going to be some sort of metaverse thing out there. Who knows what that's going to look like, how that works out technologically. Um, but there's going to be really creative blockchain-based Web3 things to do. And that's all coming. We, we're really at the earliest, earliest stages. And that's what makes it so exciting. Stu, thanks so much, man. You know, you've upgraded my IP lawness to maybe eh, you know, B plus, maybe. But uh, you <laughs> sure know, no, thanks so much for, for joining the show. And look, you know, we're really looking forward to having you back again. Chris, thanks so much for having me. This is really great talk. What's interesting about intellectual property law is that it isn't exactly decentralized. It's not usually the product of common law, where judges decide on issues on a case-by-case -case basis, but instead it's usually fashioned by legislatures and federal rules. Still, there are more than enough experts like Stu who seem to think that IP law is more robust to the novelty of crypto than, say, securities law. It's not perfect, the argument goes, but even where the law falls short, there are means to either contract around the holes as long as parties understand just what they're agreeing to which presents a bit of a paradox and a puzzle. Just how far does intellectual property go when property itself may become far more decentralized than even today's NFTs in terms of governance and even function? Well, 
like everyone else here at The Beat, we don't really know, but one thing is for certain. Buckle up. It's only going to get more interesting from here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>